0: Penn Central Railroad began vomiting oil from a a four-and-a-half-foot pipe in the Croton-Harmon rail yard, and the oil came up the river on the tides, and it blackened the beaches, and it made the shad taste of diesel so that they couldn't be sold down at the Fulton Fish Market in the city. And all of the people in Crotonville came together in the only public building in the town, the Parker Bale American Legion Hall. This was a very patriotic community. It was a room almost exactly this size, and there were 300 people in it that day, leaning against the rifle racks, hanging from the rafters, um, almost... Uh, this is a very patriotic community almost uh, Crotonville in fact had one of the highest mortality rates in World War II of any community in our country Uh, almost all of the original founders and board members of Riverkeeper were former marines they were combat veterans from World War II and Korea Uh, these weren't radicals they weren't militants they were people whose patriotism was rooted in the bedrock of our country but that night they started talking about violence because they saw something that they thought they owned which was The purity of the river's waters and the the abundance of its fisheries, which in some cases their families had exploited for generations. And these things were being robbed from them by large corporate entities over whom they had no control. And they'd been to the government agencies that are supposed to protect Americans from pollution, to the Corps of Engineers and the Conservation Department and the Coast Guard, and they were given the bums rush. At one point, the Corps Colonel Manhattan, after 20 separate visits by Richie Garrett, who was a former Marine, and another former Marine named Art Glauca, begging him to do his job and shut down the Penn Central pipe, he finally told them in exasperation, these are important people. Speaking of the Penn Central Board of Directors, we can't treat them that way. And by this evening, in March of 1966, virtually everybody in Crotonville had come to the conclusion that government was in cahoots with the polluters, and that the only way, the, yeah, the only way that they were going to reclaim the river for themselves. is if they confronted the polluters directly. And somebody suggested that they put a match to the oil slick coming out of the Penn Central pipe, burn up the pipe. And somebody else said that they should roll a mattress up and jam it up the pipe and flood the rail yard with its own waste. And somebody else said that they should float a raft of dynamite into the intake of the Indian Point power plant, which at that time was killing a million fish a day on its intake screens and taking food off their family tables. And then a guy stood up whose name was Bob Boyle and he was another former Marine. He was also the outdoor editor of Sports Illustrated magazine. And he still is today. He's been there for over 50 years. And he was a great fly fisherman and spin fisherman. He, he was one of the gurus of dry fly tying in this country. He'd written half a dozen books on fly fishing. And two years before, he had written an article about angling in the Hudson for Sports Illustrated. And in researching that article, he had come across an ancient navigational statute called the 1888 Rivers and Harbors Act. And that statute said that it was illegal to pollute any waterway in the United States, that you had to pay a high penalty if you got caught. But also there was a bounty provision that said that anybody who turned in the polluter got to keep half the fine. And he had he had sent a copy of the law over to the libel lawyers at Time, Inc., and he said, is this still good law? And they sent him a memo back saying in 80 years it's never been enforced, but it's still good law, it's still in the books. And that evening, when all these men were talking about violence, he stood up in front of them with a copy of the law and a copy of their memorandum, and he said to them, you know, we shouldn't be talking about breaking the law. We should be talking about enforcing it. And they resolved that evening that they were going to start a group that was called, then called the Fisherman's Association and later became Riverkeeper. And they were going to go out and track down and prosecute every polluter on the Hudson. Eighteen months later, they collected the first bounty in United States history under this, uh, this 80-year-old statute. They they shut down the Penn Central pipe for good. They got to keep $2,000, which was a huge amount of money in Crotonville, New York, in, in 1968. There were two weeks of wild celebration in the town. And they... <laughs> They used what was left over to go after Ciba, Geige, and Tuck Tape, and Standard Brands, and American Cyanide, the biggest corporations in America successfully, um, and the government agencies that then and today are the biggest polluters in the Hudson and across our country. That The National Guard uh, for filling a wetland in Peekskill, Westchester County for dumping toxics at Croton Point. In 1973, they collected the highest penalty in United States history against a corporate polluter. They got $200,000 from anaconda to wire and cable. They used that money for dumping toxics at Hastings, New York. They used that money to construct a boat, which they called the Riverkeeper, which today plies the Hudson, tracking down polluters. They hired, using bounty money again in 1983, their first full-time Riverkeeper, a former commercial fisherman named John Cronin. He hired me a year later as the prosecuting attorney for the group, and I was working uh, for the DA... Says if you want to bring a product to market, you pay for it to get there, and that includes the cost of cleaning up after yourself, which was a lesson we were all supposed to have learned in kindergarten. But what you know, what all of these um, uh, companies do is they use political clout to escape the free market. What General Electric. When it dumped its PCBs, and of course the mining company, the coal mining is the worst example of this, but GE, just to take a conventional example, when it dumped its PCBs into the Hudson, it was avoiding one of the costs of bringing its product to market, which was the cost of properly disposing of a dangerous process chemical. When it avoided the cost, it was able to enrich its shareholders and outcompete compete its competitors, but the cost didn't disappear. They went into the fish, and they made the people sick, and they put the men out of work, and it dried up the bar traffic, And it took the land off the tax rolls. And all of those impacts impose costs on the rest of us that should, in a true free market economy, be reflected in the price of General Electric's product when it makes it to the marketplace. But what... What uh, what GE did, which is what all polluters do, is it used chemical ingenuity and political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force you and I to pay part of their production costs. And they were cheating the market. And what we do, what all the federal environmental laws are meant to do, is to reestablish a free market economy in this country. To stop the cheaters, to catch them, to force them back into the free market so that all of us get the benefits of a true free market economy and can make uh, decisions based upon... Price in the marketplace about the true cost of that product to our society but when people cheat all of us lose the efficiencies of the free market and you know what what they're talking about when they talk about capitalism is not free market capitalism it's crony capitalism where you you sell your connections and you get and you get the benefit of your political contributions and your connections that allow you an advantage in the marketplace and to escape the discipline and the costs are imposed on the public and of course the people who shoulder, the largest uh, burden of those costs are the poorest people among us. That's what, you know, if you look at any issue of the environment, it, there's always a poverty issue attached to it. If you look, you know, access to public lands or waterways or um, who's getting poisoned by toxic waste in this country or bad air, or asthma, et cetera, it, pesticides, it's always the poorest. Um, we know, for example, just toxics is a good example. Toxics are a way of hit, hit, hitting the poor twice. If if you got a if you're a farmer you got a weed tox tox is a way of firing workers if you got a farmer you got a weed problem you got two ways to get rid of it one you can hire workers to pull the weeds two you can spray toxics and fire the workers then when you got to get rid of them where do they go well we all know there's nothing safe you can do with them if you burn them in an incinerator they are going into the air and the local people the local community is going to get sick. If you put them in a landfill, they are going into groundwater until we repeal the law of gravity. So nobody who lives in a nice neighborhood is going to allow that stuff into their neighborhood. Any of these obnoxious facilities, they don't get built in Bel Air or Greenwich or Bedford. Um, they, because those people will go out and they'll hire lawyers and they'll call the mayor who they gave their campaign contribution to and they say, they'll say they say keep it moving. So, toxics move around and around until they land in a neighborhood where the people don't have the wherewithal to defend themselves. And that's why four out of every five toxic waste dumps in America is in a black neighborhood. The largest toxic waste dump in America is Amel, Alabama, which is 85% black. The highest concentration of toxic waste dumps in America is the south side of Chicago. The most contaminated zip code in California is East LA Navajo youth have 17 times the rate of sexual organ cancer as other Americans because the thousands of tons of toxic uranium tailings that have been dumped on their reservation lands reservations have now become that you know the, the, the next scene for the corporate hog industry and for um, you know for toxic waste but it's not just the poor who get hurt it's all of us because we own these resources that's what the law says the law of North Carolina the constitution of this state says the people of the state own the water Ways of the state. They're not owned by the governor or the legislature or by the lumber industry or by Smithfield. They're owned by the people. Everybody has a right to use them. Nobody has a right to use them in a way that will diminish or injure their use and enjoyment by others. This is ancient law. It goes back to Roman times, the Code of Justinian. It was called the Public Trust Doctrine. In ancient Rome, I, I think the most important point, which is something that these men on the Hudson understood and it's the first thing that I started out talking about today, is that they understood that we are not protecting these waterways for the sake of the fishes the birds, we're protecting them for our sake, and that we protect nature because nature enriches us it enriches us economically, yes the base of our economy, and we ignore that at our peril, Like the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment but it also enriches us in other ways, aesthetically and and recreationally and culturally and historically and spiritually. And human beings have other appetites besides money. And if we don't feed them, we're not going to grow up. We're not going to become the kind of beings that we're supposed to become. We're not going to fulfill our destiny. When we destroy nature, we diminish ourselves. We impoverish our children. And this is really important for Americans to understand because our culture and who we are uh, is so tied up. Our national identity and our sense of community is so tied up in and the natural world, and particularly wilderness. From the beginning of time, our, our, our religious leaders and spiritual leaders and cultural leaders were telling the American people since, you know, since, since colonialization, you don't have to worry because you don't have the 1500 years of culture that they have in Europe because you've got this contact with nature both the working landscapes but particularly wilderness which is uh, the undiluted work of the Creator and that's going to be the source of your values and your virtues and your character as a people and this theme was echoed throughout our, our uh, our history by, um, by uh, in our literature and our art and our poetry um, our, our, the first great writer that we produced in this country James Fenimore Cooper who was the first bestseller in Europe he wrote these stories about Natty Bumpo the leather stocking tales the last of the mohegans and the pathfinder and the deerslayer about this character Natty Bumpo who was a creature of the American wilderness and had all the virtues that the European romantics associated with the American woodland uh, he had integrity and he was a crack shot and self reliance and he was a gentleman and he uh, had uh, he had this kind of wisdom of the forest and he had a kindness and a compassion and um, and they uh, the reason they made him a bestseller in Europe was not because it was good writing it wasn 't it was atrocious <laughs> it, but because but because they thought that this was a real paradigm of this new uh, kind of uh, human that was being created or melded out of the American